I don't know if you've noticed in the news recently, there's been some chatter about uh, extreme skiing. Have you caught any of those threads? And the reason that there's been chatter about that in the news recently is because there's been a number of athletes who have lost their lives to extreme skiing recently. And the uh, journalists are kind of watching this, and what they're saying is, is that the sport has gotten to a place where it's like people have explored some pretty spectacular things in extreme skiing, but now they're at the place where in order to, to have the next thrill or in order to make the next impression, you really have to do something pretty risky. And so now it's at a point where you're kind of taking your life into your hands in this thing. Not that they weren't before, but it's getting to a whole nother level. And of course, the journalists are asking the question to the American public, is it worth it? You know, is it worth it for these people to put their lives on the line? And of course, the only real answer to that is, well, it depends on what you're looking for, right? <laughs> Whether it's worth it or not. I mean, if, if what you're looking for is an adrenaline rush, an endorphin rush, I mean, you're going to have to at some point put your life on the line in order to get the rush and get the thrill. And, uh, you know, there's also other things to be found. There's, you know, the pride of feeling like I conquered something, or there's the, the potential fame that can come, and there's a whole lot of money to be made if you're in the right spot at the right time, an extreme uh, sports person. But the real question is like, yeah, but is that like truly worthwhile? Is any of that stuff actually worth risking your life for? And again, you know, each of us have something that we're looking for. We're each on a path and we're each on a journey. And there's risk required and there's commitment required to those journeys. And we might not always be able to say what it is that we're searching for or what it is we're looking for. Our minds might not be able to completely comprehend, but our path, the destiny, our path, the journey that we're on is still determined by us, whether or not we understand what it is or not. Because behind our minds, underneath of our minds is our hearts, our spirit. And our spirit has a will. And it wants something. And whether or not we can define that or say it out loud or understand it, we shape our lives around what it is that we're pursuing one way or the other. And this leads us to a couple of very real questions. Two in particular. One is, is what I'm pursuing worthwhile? And second, am I really pursuing what I think I'm pursuing and what I say I'm pursuing? And the first question, I mean, is it really worthwhile? There, there's, a, there's a question that just, okay, at the end, am I going to get what it is that I'm hoping to receive? And when I do, will that actually be worth what it took to get there? And the second question then is, am I actually pursuing that or am I saying I'm pursuing that? And you, if you... Uh, Listen to people who are in limelight careers, you know, uh, politicians or musicians, Hollywood stars, athletes. Many times when they get asked, how did you get to the place where you're at right now? You know, and, and particularly if there's someone who's at the very top of their game, what they'll say is, is they'll say, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of talent and a, lo and a lot of abilities, but what it takes to get to this level is it takes all out sacrifice to get here. You got to be totally, you got to devote yourself to this thing. And it reminds me of that Acts series that we just came out of in Acts 2.42, where it said they fully devoted themselves to uh, these things. And that idea of completely devoting yourself. And that's what they'll say it takes to be in this position. I was, uh, uh, you know, I was a basketball fan as a kid. And I remember, uh, you know, thinking, listening to uh, what it took for Michael Jordan to be Michael Jordan. 
there would be the interview of Michael Jordan, and they, was, they would ask him, what, what does it take? And, uh, you know, there, you would hear these stories about how all the other guys, at the end of practice, they go home, they take their showers, they go home, they hang out with their families or do whatever it is they're going to do. And Michael would stay there for hours on end after practice just shooting shots, you know? That's what he would do. And he would just shoot shots and shoot shots and shoot shots, you know? And that's what he would be about. And then what you realize is the reason that this guy was so far above the rest wasn't just because he was a greater talent. It was also because he fully gave himself to this, you know? And so uh, this is the picture of when I have to ask myself, what am I really about? Because it's easy to say, hey, I want to be a pro ball player. I want to do this or I want to do that. But what does it take to actually get there and how much am I going after that? And so we're going to kind of explore those two questions about is this destiny going to be, is this path I'm traveling on going to pay in the end? Is it going to bring what I want? And am I actually on the path that I think I am, you know? And okay, so we're going to go after that, but I want you to join me in prayer before we do and before we step into this series and this message. So join me, please. You say in John 14, uh, John quotes you, Jesus, as saying this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And we recognize that the origin of life is from the Father. And He is the Alpha. He is the beginning. And apparently the end of life is the Father. It all comes back to the glory of God. And we want to be on the journey that leads toward Him. And we recognize that if you say you're the only way, the only truth, and the only life that leads us there then I guess that means we really need you. We need to be people following Christ. And so we ask that God today in this message, you would teach us more about that. You would help us to see ourselves, to know ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen. We've kind of started this habit here at Parker Ford Church in celebrating this season that we traditionally uh, refer to as Lent. Uh, I don't know if celebrating would be the right word, observing Lent. We, uh, Lent is not something that historically our, the denomination we've been connected to observes. That's uh, something that's kind of come from outside of us. But, you know, Lent isn't actually a biblical season. It's not defined by the scriptures. That's a church tradition. But if you ask me, it's a really good one if it's observed appropriately, you know, with its original intention. The idea of Lent is that we're looking forward to Easter and looking forward to Good Friday and Easter, and we're trying to get ourselves prepared in a place where we are letting go. We, we realize over the last year, we've picked up a lot of self-reliance, self-indulgence. We might not be focused on Christ or dependent on Christ and all of that. And so it's a time to take toll, kind of take inventory, ask God to reveal to us where we're not looking to him to cleanse us of all of that so when we get to good friday and easter we can really appreciate it for what it is you know and we can be focused on him that's the idea of lent and who can argue with that i mean that's a that's a good solid thought you know we've historically uh, observed that here as a church by engaging with the east coventry union of churches and having we go around uh, to on wednesday nights to the different churches in the area and we celebrate together uh, you know, each Wednesday night. And those are cool services. I always look forward to taking my kids to those services. There's no kids ministries there. And so they have to sit in a big person service, you know, which is good for them. And it's a shorter service. And it's, and it's always, uh, you know, we have these churches who are, are from radically different backgrounds and we have different 
uh, some theological differences and we have some worship style differences and all of that. But you know, the, the, the thing that binds us together around Lent is the fact that we know the reason we have life is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, and that binds us together. And the other things kind of fade away in that moment. And we celebrate this together and we join together in celebrating that. And it's a good experience. What we've also started to do, we've formed this habit that we observe it here by having a sermon series that really focuses on the life of Christ during Lent. And uh, so we're going to be doing that again this Lenten, uh, Lenten season, and we're going to be uh, calling this the journey to Jerusalem, as you've heard. And uh, the whole idea is that there's this trip that Jesus takes at the very end of his earthly life prior to his death, where he takes his apostles and they take a trip down to Jerusalem. And we all know that's where it all goes down. In the book of John, the entire second half of the book of John is written about this last week of Jesus' life. Isn't that amazing? I mean, John, like the whole gospel of John, it's there to tell us the life and ministry of Jesus. And yet the whole second half of it is given to one week, this last week. John must really, really, really think that's important, you know? And so starting in chapter 12 is where we pick up. And what we're hoping to do in this series is, is kind of get in the get in there with the apostles and with the disciples and feel a little bit what it was like to be on this journey with Jesus and to see Christ hopefully shed a little more light on who Christ is and maybe see our own journeys with Christ a little more as we walk through this journey. So we're going to be in John, we're going to start today in John chapter 12 and uh, we're going to go from verse 1 to verse 11 and uh, as we usually do I'm going to have you stand in honor of God's word as I read it please. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. May God add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. This message in particular, we're calling the preparation. And uh, when you think about preparation for a journey, you think about kind of getting your map out or punching the numbers into your GPS, you know, getting oriented for the journey. Packing your bags, making sure you have the food, writing out an itinerary. This is not the kind of preparation that is happening in this passage. Completely different kind of preparation. This is not actually the disciples preparing for the journey they're about to take. This is actually God setting the stage for something that's about to happen. 
And uh, this shift from chapter 11 into chapter 12 of John is almost like you're watching a play. And you know when you get to the end of one act and you start another, the lights go down and all you can see is there's like shadows on the stage of people pushing things back and forth, you know, and the stage is shifting. That's what's happening here is that the whole scene is shifting. You see, up till now, Jesus has in some ways been in hiding, you know. Every time that he heals someone, he tells them not to, not to go out and tell everyone. And when the chief priests try to get a hold of him, he slips through the crowd and gets away from them. And Jesus has laid low. And while the crowds have come after him, there's been a level at which he's kept things certain, uh, you know, quiet in a certain framework. And at this point, what's beginning to happen is, is the stage is being set and Jesus is completely coming out at this point. And we are going to see that there's no holds bar anymore. And the way we see this initially is that it just started to come to fruition because Jesus did this epic miracle. He just raised somebody from the dead. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. I mean, this guy, he didn't just raise someone from the dead. This guy was dead for four days, okay? And he was buried, and then he got raised. Now, I want you to picture that in our context. Someone you know dies. Someone dies, they go to the hospital, they're, they're declared dead, they, you go to the funeral home, they have all the, the, you know, the stuff that happens, and we have the ceremony, we have the memorial service, we have the funeral, there's a graveside, there's a burial, the casket goes down, it's covered up. It's four days later. Four days later, someone comes to the tomb, someone comes to the gravesite, says, pull the stone away, dig it back up, pull the casket up, open it up, and says, wake up. And the person sits up in the casket and they come and they sit down with us here at church. Think about that. Think about what that would do if the media got a hold of that. You know? You imagine? And that's exactly what happened. It went nuts. And everyone needed to see Lazarus. Because in our day and age, no one would actually believe that unless they saw it with their own eyes, right? Because there's, everybody's got an angle and there's so much junk and you can't trust the media and all that's, yeah, right. So you got to see it with your own eyes. And that's exactly how people were then too. I got to see Lazarus with my own eyes. And so there's this surging crowd that was like, what is going on? Someone just got raised from the dead. Of course, the chief priests and the elders had no time for this because what was happening with the religious leaders of the time is that they had Rome, they had an agreement with Rome and they had a power play and they liked things the way they were and they didn't want that disrupted. And here comes this Jesus who is surging with power and is going to mess up the whole thing. And so they needed to stop the whole thing. And our passage ends with saying that they're actually trying to kill Lazarus. How's this going to end? You kill Lazarus, Jesus will raise him from the dead. You know, like, how's that actually going to work out for you? But you can tell, like, they, they're not okay with it. So there's this spectacular, epic revelation of Jesus' authority taking place. And then there's the clash that ultimately comes from that. And it's beginning to set the stage for what's about to happen in a week. Okay, and that's what's happening now in, in the specific context. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, they decide they're going to throw a party for Jesus. That would be appropriate, you know. That's, uh, you know so they're thanking him. So they throw this party, and Martha's serving at the party, of course, because that's what Martha does. And Mary is going to be at the feet of Jesus, of course, because that's what Mary does. And as we know their personalities, we find out this is how they work. But what God is doing in the middle of this party, you see, there's, they're, having a, they're having a party to celebrate resurrection. 
They're having a party to celebrate resurrection. But what they don't understand is that this is also preparation for a burial. And that's what Jesus even says. He says in the passage that what Mary does to him, that she was to save this perfume for the day of his burial. She did this as a thanksgiving for resurrection. She doesn't know she's anointing him for burial. The irony in that is thick if you think about it for a while, you know? And if you dig in, if you just sit there, that's, that, it's really thick. And what God is doing is God is beginning in this whole scene to reveal something. We know where Jesus is going. We've read the text. We know where he's going. But Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what's coming at this point. Remember what Hebrews says? It says, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew where he was going. Where was he going? He was going back to his dad. That's where Jesus was going. He had to go through the cross, and he had to rise from the dead, and he had to do all that, but where Jesus was headed was home to his father. That's where he was headed. He knew his destination, and he was going there. Everyone else in the scene, now we're starting to see where they're headed, and that's what God is doing. He's preparing There are two different journeys here. As Jesus says over and over again in his ministry, there are two different journeys, two different paths that we can choose. And we see in this scene, as we journey toward Good Friday and Easter, it's either a journey toward Good Friday or it's a journey toward Easter. It's either a journey toward the cross or it's a journey toward the resurrection. It's either a journey toward separation from God or it's a journey toward connection with God. You see, there are some who desperately want to see the cross take place. There are these chief priests who just want to see themselves separated from this problem. And so they will ultimately, it will lead to the cross. And we see Judas in this passage, who, and we, and we know it gets dirty, you know? And, and Judas, you don't see him necessarily wanting to, to execute Christ, but what you see is he wants his own space. He wants his own stuff. He wants separation. And ultimately, it will be that separation that sells Jesus out and puts him on a cross. Now there are also all of those who desperately want connection with God and they need the cross. And it's because of the cross that they will ultimately be able to have connection with Christ, but they will not look forward to the cross. They will mourn the cross and they will grieve the cross. Their destination is the resurrection. It's the hope of the resurrection where they can be connected to Christ. See, there are those who want to separate themselves from God, and there are those who want to draw close to Him. So there are those who look forward to the cross, which separates, you know? And and there are those who look forward to the resurrection, where Jesus is risen, and He's there and present with us. What's happening is as Jesus is revealed, He divides. And this is what happens all the time. When Jesus kind of reveals Himself, it divides people. It just happens. It has to happen. You know, once he kind of takes off all of the the wrapping that allows him to be the soft, nice Jesus that we appreciate, when all of a sudden it gets raw and we see God for who he really is, people go one of two ways. You know, and this is why why the scriptures tell us in Romans and in 1 Peter that, and in Isaiah that Jesus, he's the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes them fall. And we're told in Matthew that this rock of Jesus 
that some are broken to pieces as they fall on it, but others are crushed by it. And what happens is when Jesus reveals himself, when God comes to the scene, people will go one of two ways. They will either break and they will humble themselves and they will come to terms with reality that this is truth. And because of that, I am a broken man and I have to come to terms with that. And I still want to be with you. So I have to be in a humble posture and I'm broken to pieces. And it becomes broken, repentant worship. Or there are those who try to stay their ground and hold their ground and say, I got this, you know? And you hear it a little bit in Peter when he's like, Lord, you're not allowed to wash my feet. Remember that? And you hear a little bit of him trying to go there where he's like, I got this, I don't need you. And it's gigantic, of course, in the, in the chief priests who are like, get rid of this man. We want nothing to do with him. And you hear it in between those two with Judas who's like, yeah, I'll sell him out because what I really want is the money. You know, and this is over here. This is over here is the rock that we throw ourselves on. And whatever it takes, we break to pieces and say, God, you got to put me back together. But over here is when God comes into the scene, we say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And ultimately, we will find ourselves crushed. Because you can't forget the, the fact that Jesus is the truth, the life, the reality. And at some point, we will come face to face and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that will happen whether we like it or not, but we can happen willingly over here. Okay, so this is what's happening is Jesus comes into the scene and people, you start to see where they're at, you know, which journey they're on. Everyone needs the cross, but some really want it, you know? Some want the separation. Others want the resurrection. And this is what happens every time God comes onto the scene. And this is why we see that when true worship happens in the church, when people encounter God and they truly worship God, it almost always starts a firestorm in churches. It it does. And when you look throughout the history of the church, when people really start to worship God and give themselves to God, there's a, a level of uncomfortability that happens because within this thing that we call church in Christendom, there's plenty of people who would much rather see the cross than the resurrection. You know, there's a lot of people who are, who have Judas tendencies or have momentary Peter tendencies, you know, to, to not want to have that. And when you, all of a sudden you see someone pour themselves out in worship, there's a reaction to that. And you know why that is? This is not because we just have differences around styles of worship. I mean, that's part of it. There's art differences and preferences and all of that. But the big reason is because we're told that God inhabits the praises of his people. And if God inhabits the praises of his people, then that means that when someone starts praising God and pouring their heart out, guess who's going to show up? God. And when God shows up, guess what happens? People are either broken in worship or they're crushed by watching God. And you see the separation. And so all across the history of the church, you watch over and over again as real worship breaks out and people start, like the church just splits and it divides and there's all this mess. And we can look at that and say, we are a mess and we can't get our stuff together. And that's true, but it's not because of styles of worship. And it's not because of the lack of God that we have that division. It's actually because God is still alive and well in the worship of people that we see that division. 
It's because God is present in the church over the last 2,000 years that we see division over worship. If God wasn't present, then we could nitpick about this tradition or that tradition, and we'd be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, chit, 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 you know, and that type of thing. But when God shows up in the church, man, it just, boom, and it separates. All of a sudden, there's two paths, and you will find yourself on one path or the other. You are either broken, repentant, in worship of God, or you are over here saying, I don't know about all that. And guess what's, you know, like, and we're reacting. Acting. And that's what God's doing in this whole scene here in this story is he's setting the stage and he's revealing hearts because when Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins to really allow himself to walk in the fullness of his authority, we cannot help but react and our hearts will be revealed. This is our creator. This is our Messiah. We will either receive him or we won't. We'll either worship him or we won't, you know, and that's what's happening. So when we turn to this text, we find something really interesting. We find Judas asking a question. And what is his question? It's a question about investment. It's a question about stewardship, about responsibility. Ultimately, he's asking a question about, like, was that a wise investment? She just dropped all of that coin on Jesus' feet, you know, to what end? Like, what is that about? That's his question. What a waste of money pouring that perfume, that precious perfume worth all that money. And, and that's his question. But when you listen to the story, the story actually asks us a whole nother question, a whole nother set of questions, much deeper questions, not about stewardship and responsibility, but about integrity. Are we really, are we seriously worshiping God here or not? You know, are we following him or not? It asks us that question. It asks us about priorities. It asks us about loyalty. Where is our heart? And really, it asks us about love. What journey are we on? What do we really care about? Who do we care about? And when you read this text, it just screams out to you, you know? You can't help but try, to, but, but try to identify yourself within it. You have to, you know? Where am I in this thing? You know, you have Mary who's worshiping like crazy. You have Judas over here who doesn't quite understand it and doesn't get it and seems to be going another direction. You have the chief priests who don't like it. You have the apostles who are strangely silent in this thing other than Judas, you know? And where am I in all of this? You know, and, and it asks us these questions. It asks us these deeper questions. First question that it asks us, this is just like those two original questions, right? Is the journey I'm on worthwhile, first of all? And secondly, am I really on the journey I think I am? Those two questions is what it comes down to. This is what the text is, is calling out. The first question, is it worthwhile? We know without a doubt that Judas' path is not worthwhile. Right? We know, I mean, it, it, that's just, so we won't even mess with that. We could talk about why it's not worthwhile, but who cares? It's not worthwhile. The real question here is, is the path with Jesus worthwhile? And you guys are all at church, so you're going to say, of course it's worthwhile. But let's think about it for a second. What does Jesus actually offer? What is it that he says life with him will provide? You know, John has been telling us that all through the gospel so far. John 3.16, the, the world's most famous Sunday school, memory verse, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life, eternal life, that we will have this life that doesn't end, you know? Oh, is that something worth following? Yeah, you know, it's the holy grail. It's immortality. It's everlasting life, you know? Well, that's great. What does he mean by that? Move forward, John 10, 10. He says, I have come that you may have life and you may have it abundantly to the full. 
And what he's saying is, is he's come to give us life. In John 14, he'll remind us, he'll say, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And so what he's saying is, and when you look back at John 3.16, you realize that he's not just giving us a ticket to heaven and saying, here you have eternal life. That what he's saying is, is he wants to give us the deep life, the rich life, the full life. And we're not talking about Miller High life or the lifestyle of the rich and famous. We're not talking about the, the glory of like, we're saying that it's the life that drips with meaning, that everything I do can be connected to God and I can be in relationship with God himself. That in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us, the gift was not everlasting life. He gave us his only begotten son. That's what he gave us. And it is through him the only way that we can actually achieve relationship with the Father. Part of that is that we needed sacrificial atonement on a cross. And we needed to have our sins washed and all of that. But that's not the fullness of his grace. That's not the fullness of his gift. That is part of what's necessary in order to engage the fullness of the gift. And what is the gift? The gift is Jesus. The gift is relationship with Christ. That I can have the full and rich and deep life as I journey with Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. He gave him to us. And that's why Jesus says that I have come that you may have life. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I am the way. I am the truth. And, and what's happening is, is we recognize that when it comes to is this path worthwhile, the path is a journey not toward just receiving what Christ does on a cross. The journey is toward intimacy with Christ. It's a journey toward relationship with Him. And He has promised us life in its fullness by connecting with Him. Mary knew this. Mary's well aware of it. Mary recognizes that not only is this what he offers, but is it worthwhile? This isn't the first time that Mary's had a good worship experience with God, right? I mean, our introduction to Mary is pretty spectacular. It's the one we know more about Mar Martha and Mary, and it's in Luke 10. And we got to read it again. You guys probably all know the story, but you got to hear it. So this is Luke 10, 38, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. How many of us have ever been distracted from Christ in our relationship with Christ? The rest of you are liars. She came to him and asked, listen to her talking to God. <laughs> like, wow, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? And listen to this, the way she barked orders to Jesus. Tell her to help me. Oh, man, wow. And I, I think that I, I, that's the tone I hear anyway. And like I hear Jesus' tone in response totally different. I hear him being like, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it won't be taken from her. You know? This is the first encounter with these two. Mary's not pouring herself out in worship with God because she's guessing whether it's worthwhile or not. 
She knows this is worthwhile, not only because she desires Jesus so much, but because Jesus himself has even affirmed in her that, yes, this is better. When Martha was distracted trying to do all these good things and check all the things off her list and get done everything in her life and make sure she's doing a good job, Mary's sitting there chilling with Jesus this day, listening to him, and, and he, she gets affirmed by Jesus. And he says, she has chosen what is better. And when God Almighty tells us that there's only one thing that's needed and this person has chosen that better thing and it won't be taken from her, that's when we stop the press, we look at what he's saying, and we say, he just told us the one path that we should journey on. There's only one thing that's necessary. There's only one thing that's needed. I better tune in at this point. And it's sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's drawing close to him in relationship. So is this path worthwhile? You bet it is. It's worthwhile. What does he promise? Life. Is he good for it? This is where it gets funny. This is where it gets funny. Because, you know, you see Martha, who's serving, by the way, again, in this story. But this time you don't see her whining and complaining. You don't see her frustrated. My guess is that by this point, Martha has realized that she can actually work as unto the glory of God. And that she has seen her work now as a, an act of worship. And, and she's learned to engage in that. But there's Martha and there's Mary, and we know what they're doing, but there's another sibling who's there who's sitting at the table. Who's that? Lazarus. And if we want to ask ourselves if Jesus is good for it when he promises life, you just got to laugh a little bit because they're, they're throwing a party for Lazarus. And for some reason, John decides to tell us, oh, and by the way, Lazarus is there. Well, of course Lazarus is there. The party is about Lazarus. And the commentators all wonder, like, why do they go through the redundancy to tell us that Lazarus is there? And some of them say, well, it's probably because Lazarus had to be in hiding because there's so many people trying to see him. And they're saying this is the kind of his coming out party first. And that may be true, but I think there's another reason why John reminds us that Lazarus is right there at the table. Because as we're being called to say, is this life worth it? Can he actually give what he promises? There's this open irony, this obvious irony, that this isn't just a story of some guy being raised from the dead. This guy sat in a tomb for four days, dead. He was cold. They all saw it. And he's sitting across the table from Jesus right now. Like I'm at this table, Lazarus, the guy who was dead for four days, is sitting here across the table eating with me. You know, is he good for it? Can he produce life? I mean, it's just laughable to ask that question in the middle of it. He just raised Lazarus from the dead, you know. So the question about is this path worthwhile, it's the only path that's worthwhile but you already knew that. The bigger question is, are we actually journeying on the path that we say we're journeying on, right? And that's where the text really, really starts to jump out at us. And this is where Judas, um, you know, it, it's, it, it gets turned on its head a little bit. And we see Mary pour herself out in worship, and Judas asks this question that at first seems like an intelligent question, doesn't it? I mean, like, honestly, that's a lot of money. It's a year's worth of wages. That's a lot of money, a year's worth of wages that she just spilled out, okay? Think about that money. Whatever you earn in a year, think about that. She just threw it away and there's nothing coming back. Judas asks a question. He says, couldn't we have used this a little bit more wisely? You know, there's the poor. We could take care of them. But what happens is, is that Judas sticks his foot in his mouth when he says this because he reveals his heart. 
Because you realize that in this amazing moment of beauty, in this amazing moment of worship, what is Judas thinking about? What is he thinking about? Help me out. He is thinking about himself, definitely. And in particular, what form of it? He's thinking about money. The only way that we know whether we're really on the journey or not is when, we come, when it comes to the place where we get a chance to choose Christ or we get a chance to choose the other thing and no one else is watching and no one else knows and here it is, what do I really want? You see, when Michael Jordan, when everyone else goes home and everyone's like, okay, you're doing great, you know, good practice, way to go, yes, you're a pro athlete. It's at that point when he can go home and enjoy his, his life or whatever that we find out what he really wants, what his life's really about. And when he decides to stay and shoot baskets, you say, whoa, this guy's really on And what happens here is that Judas is in the moment and what he can't handle is that this idol that he really wants, the money that he wants to fill his pockets with, in that moment when it comes into confrontation with worship with Jesus, he can't handle it. He can't handle it. And Judas, man, has this guy followed Jesus? This guy gave up everything, didn't he? I mean, he's one of these apostles who gave it all up to follow Jesus. And if anyone should be able to say, I'm a follower of Christ, you know, it should be Judas, along with any, every, all the other 12, you know, the, the other 11. And yet here he is in this moment. And there's a journey toward resurrection, toward intimacy with God that's forming. And you find that Judas is not binding himself toward Christ, but he's beginning to separate himself from Christ. And the reason is because Judas actually wants some of his own space. He wants to do life his way. He wants the wealth to be able to find life the way he wants it. He's not depending on Christ for life. He's depending on the money for life. And so there's a conflict of interest, and there's just thick, thick irony here. I don't know if you remember, you know, Judas, what does he want to do with the money? What does he say he wants to do with the money? Feed the poor. Okay, so he wants to feed the poor. Rewind. You ever remember a time in Jesus' ministry where there was a bunch of people who were hungry and who needed to be fed? Yeah, okay. And the apostles come to him, and what do they say? They say, hey, all these people are hungry. You should send them away so they can get something to eat. And Jesus responds to them by saying, you give them something to eat. And they're like, we can't. You know why? Because it would take a year's worth of wages to feed them all. A year's worth of wages is what it would take. Fast forward. Here we are, and Mary pours out a year's worth of wages on Jesus' feet. And he says, he has the audacity to say, why did we do that? We could have used that year's worth of wages to feed the poor. Man, you missed the memo. You forgot to take the notes. It was a year's worth of wages that he fed all those people with. And guess what? We didn't have any money. We had five loaves and two fish. If you want to feed the poor, then feed Jesus, man. Don't worry about the, the year's worth of wages. He just takes five loaves and two fishes and makes food that's the, the same equivalent. And you're worried about this money. He didn't get it. You know, he's missing it. There's, and, and he's deceiving himself, thinking that he cares about the poor. He doesn't care about the poor, but I bet you Judas would actually argue that he really did care about the poor. And I bet that in some ways, he actually really thought that he cared about the poor. But he didn't. He didn't at all. Because if he cared about the poor, he would realize that Jesus is the way they get fed. And so we need to pursue Christ because, man, I've never seen someone feed the poor like that. 
And if you really care about the poor, then you're finding the best way to feed them. And the best way to feed them is take the guy who can take five loaves and two fishes and get it done. And if what he's really worried about is good, wise investing for the kingdom of God, then Jesus is a way better investment than, you know, just taking it and going and buy a bunch of food. But he's not thinking that way. And every time that we have idolatry in us and we say that we're following Christ and yet we're pursuing other things, there's a glitch in our system. And we don't realize that there's a short circuit. And we come around and we're like, I'm following Christ, I'm following Christ. What was that? And we, and we go another route. And then we have all sorts of justifications in our minds as to why we think the way we do and why we're not following here and why we're not worshiping him here and why we're not giving this up to him here. And all these justifications because it's smarter to do this and it's wiser to do this and blah, 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 blah. You know, like it doesn't matter because it's a short circuit in our mind that really is based on our heart and the thing that we can't explain or be honest about with ourselves that I might not actually be on that journey. You know, that's a scary thought, you know. And the only way you find out is when those things come head to head. And when they do, and they come head to head, and we find ourselves falling short, there's a whole other thing that we can do, which is we can either pretend that it's not there, or we can break into pieces over the rock of Jesus and say, God, forgive me and bring me back to the path, you know. But Judas doesn't do that, and we find that Judas isn't really worshiping Christ and isn't actually following Jesus, even though he looks like a follower but then there's this other picture, and there's this picture of Mary. And, you know, this is one of the most amazing pictures of worship in Scripture. It honestly is. It's just so beautiful. You know what she does? She just completely wastes herself on Christ. That's what she does. Think about it. What's the return for that investment? Is God going to think better of her because she does this? Honestly? Will God think better of Mary because she does this? Let me tell you the answer. No. God loves her, and there's one reason, and it's it's like this thing that's hanging above me here. You know, the cross. It's the only reason why he's impressed with any of us. He won't think better of her. So she's not getting, you know, a higher opinion from Jesus out of this. What is it? What is the return? You know? There's nothing there. It's not impressing the people around her. It's not all that. Like, what is this? There's no return to it at all. It's a complete and total waste. I, was, I did a little research to figure out in America, what is, what is a year's worth of wages, the average wage? Anyone know what it is off the top of your head? 42? It, it's anywhere, there's, it depends on where you ask. It's anywhere from 26 to 45, anywhere in there. So what we're going to say is 35, Okay. So let's say this is $35,000. Think about this nard that she has. That, I can't get past that word, nard, man. I just, it's like a mix between nerd and lard, you know, <laughs> like nard. And I, it's just a bad marketing. Like if you're going to be selling perfume, like nard is not the good word to put on it, you know. Um, at any rate, she has this nard. And what was amazing about nard was that it wasn't just perfume, really expensive perfume. It was also a commodity. She could resell that for the same value. It's kind of like gold or silver. It's nice to have, but it's also a commodity. It's something that, could, that was very precious and you could trade it. And, uh, and so this was savings. It wasn't just perfume. It was also savings. This was her bank account in many ways. And uh, so here she has $35,000. Let's say the equivalent of $35,000 in our day and age. Okay. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you have $35,000 laying around. If you do, come talk to me. Um, just kidding. 
Um, $35,000 is a lot of money, and most of us don't drive cars that are close to $35,000, you know? Uh, you know, and there, there's, I don't know what you have that's $35,000. Your mortgage is probably more than that, but beyond that, I don't know what you have that's $35,000, but imagine pouring your car into a perfume bottle and then pouring it out on someone and you no longer have a car and you have nothing to show for it. Now you're in a bad spot because now you got to buy a car. You know, you know what I mean? Like $35,000 is a big, big deal. You know, that's a ton of cash. And she just pours it out on him. I want you to think about this too. This stuff, the way that nard was used back then, <laughs> I just want to laugh every time I say that word. Um, the way that nard was used is she, they, they would take a, a, their finger and dip a little bit of it, and they'd, when they had a really special guest come to their house, they'd put a little spot of it on the person's hair, you know? And it would be like the way of honoring this special guest. And it would put off this aroma that was like amazing aroma, apparently. And that person would be, you know, kind of sweet smelling to everyone else around them. And it was a way of honoring that guest. Mary takes this thing, and she takes the whole bottle. I, I bought my wife a bottle of perfume. It's one of the things I got her at, uh, at uh, Valentine's Day. It's one of those gifts that, like, partially to her, partially to me, I guess. I don't know how that works. But she actually wanted perfume. And uh, it was not $35,000. It did not cost that. Um, it was nowhere close to $35,000. It was also not called NARD. Yeah. I wouldn't have bought that. And so she pours, if, if my wife poured that out right now, I, I don't think I'd be real happy, you know? And uh, if she just kind of like dumped it out on somebody's feet or something, you know? Like even if it was really stinky in a place and she just poured the whole thing out, like I just bought that for you. You know, like that's a lot of money. Um, and yet it's nowhere near that amount of money. And she takes all of it and she pours it out on Jesus. And I just want you to think about this for a second. Like, if a little drop of that could make someone smell, that way, can you imagine what it smelled like in that room? Have you ever seen someone with, have you, you know, when someone walks past you and they have too much cologne on or too much perfume and you're like, or you sit in the airplane? If, oh man, you're like, I'm going to have a headache tonight. You know, can you imagine? This stuff is so intense and the whole thing's poured out on his feet. And I bet you in that room, it just reeked. You know, like, and I, I mean, good in one sense, but way too intense. We started off this message talking about extreme skiing. This is extreme worship, and you can smell it. I believe that probably when John is on the island of Patmos years from now, and he's receiving the vision about, you know, the end times, and he's sitting there thinking in, as Revelations 5 and Revelations 8 are being revealed to him, he's picturing here are these bowls where incense is being brought to God. And it says that in those bowls are the prayers of the saints, which are sweet-smelling incense to God. And I would imagine that as John's seeing that, he's reflecting back to this moment, and he's remembering what it was like to be in that room and the intensity of the smell and the prayers that are beautiful incense to God. This is extreme worship. And you know what happens when extreme worship happens? People ask the same thing that they ask of extreme skiers. That's just crazy. Why would you do that? It's such a waste. And people say it with much more passion around extreme worshipers. It doesn't make sense to people. And in religious circles, so often it angers people. And you know why it angers them? For two reasons. One is because they don't understand. It seems like a total waste. Why would you act that emotional in front of God? Why would you 
defame yourself that way. Why would you take your checkbook and write that kind of check to God? You have responsibilities to take care of. Why would you do something that absurd? Why would you act like that in front of God? Why would you sell your life out for this stuff? You're way too overzealous. Would you please just chill out? And the second reason is because it sets the bar too high in their mind. They get frustrated because they're like, this is what I understood. I understood that if I came to church and if I read my Bible and if I did this and if I did that, that I was cool with God and we were okay. And now all of a sudden you come in and do all of that and you're messing up my system here. You know, you're, they're raising the bar of worship, you know, and, and, and I don't get that because I don't, I still want my space. I still want like Judas to have some of my stuff that's not God's, that's just mine. I want over here, I still want my dignity. I don't want to take my beautiful hair and wash the feet of Jesus with it. I want my dignity. I want my wealth. I want my time. I want my pride. I want my, I want my, I want my, well, she doesn't want any of that. She wants Christ. And she doesn't get their whole mentality and why Judas doesn't even understand it because here's the difference between Mary and here's the difference between a true worshiper and someone who's caught in a religious short circuit in their mind. The big difference is that the person who's engaging religiosity for the sake, they still want to achieve something. They're still empty and they're still searching for something. And Judas was all about following Christ, assuming that Christ would make him rich, Christ would make him famous, Christ would help him overthrow the government, Christ would do all of that. He doesn't actually want Christ. What he wants is all the other stuff. And so many people are connected to faith because the reason they're really there is they want to feel better about themselves or they want to feel good or they want to look better to their neighbors or they want to achieve eternal life. And so if I come to church and all of that, then I might get this, I might get that. And the cross is just a means to an end. And it's not relationship to Jesus that's the end. And so I can check off the fact that I'm going to heaven or I can check off the fact that I feel good about myself now and I'm going to continue to move on. But this isn't the case with Mary. This is how it works with Mary. You see, Mary, I don't believe she's looking for anything anymore. I think Mary just wants to say thank you. I think the difference between Mary is here she put a price tag on the fact that Jesus just raised her brother from the dead. Put a price tag on that. What does she have to gain from this? There's nothing to be gained. This is not a picture of someone who's still trying to earn something. This is a picture of someone who found something and wants to give herself to it. The only thing that I know of that, that can actually reveal this in our society is, is an engagement ring, you know? And, and you've got to work with me because I know engagement rings and diamonds, we've done all sorts of crazy stuff with that in our society. But picture for a second a guy who really has fallen in love with a girl okay? And he wants to be with this girl. And so he goes out and he sells his bike. And he goes out and he sells his hot rod. And he goes out and he sells his flat screen, you know? And he gets rid of all this stuff and he acquires as much money as he can. And he goes out and he buys this tiny little rock, you know? He has this tiny little rock with it. And what's the return on that investment? I mean, honestly, What's the return? If, if she already loves him and if he already loves her, it's not like this is going to earn her love at this point. And if it does, it's not the good thing, you know, and you know, all that. But like the whole point is not that this is an investment. He's not trying to gain something. He's trying to show her that he loves her. And he's trying to tell her that she's precious. And he's saying, thank you for being with me. And this is what Mary's doing. She's fulfilled. She's been loved, and, and her brother's been raised from the dead. She's not looking for something. She's deciding to waste herself intentionally on Jesus. 
The whole point, why do you get a diamond instead of a cubic zirconium? No one really tells the difference anyway. What's the difference? The difference is I need to waste more money on you. That's it. Truly, honestly, it doesn't look different. It's the, wor- the fact that it's worth this much that makes it that important because I want to waste my money on you. Because I want to waste my time on you. Because I want to waste my life on you. Because everyone else looking at Jesus wants to use him to get to another end. And what she's saying is, you are the end. There is nowhere else anymore. I don't have a bank account that's outside of yours. I don't have time or life or energy or wealth or emotion that's separated from you. You are the end. The reason I earn it all is to give it to you. See, here's the deal, Jesus. You are everything. I've ever wanted and I want nothing more than just to be with you and so she wastes herself on Jesus and those who haven't found the love they don't get it they don't get it and it's a sad sad thought and they get really really angry when they see that kind of thing and it just turns them inside because they're trying to achieve something and they're like I can't actually achieve that and it's true they can't achieve that you can't sacrifice like that unless you've been loved and are in love that's it you know an engagement with God is not about trying to achieve an end it's not about using Jesus or his cross to get to heaven or to knock something off of my list If we journey just to the cross, it's a journey towards separation. But if we journey toward the resurrection, ah, it's a relationship with Christ. And so there are two passages of Scripture that we end reading. And this is God calling to us from Isaiah 55. And this is what he says. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. All that we want, all that we could imagine, the deep life, the rich life found in him. And I believe that the response to that passage is a passage you find in Psalm 27 when you hear David. Psalm 27, 4. And he just says, there's one thing I ask. One thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the heart of a worshiper. It's the heart of someone who wants relationship with Jesus. So as we start Lent, as we begin Lent, this is a journey toward cross, a journey through the cross, a journey toward resurrection, and a journey toward sitting at the feet of Jesus at the end. And while he goes and sits down at the right hand of the throne of God, we hope and pray to sit at his feet and to worship him, and to receive from him. And we ask in this journey of Lent, hey God, where, we've be, where it's become about us, and we've been deceived, and, and we've started to chase this, or my relationship with you has been about like seeing myself this way, or achieving this. Get rid of all that junk, man. The only thing I need is you. That's all I need, and that's all I want. Let's let go of all the other junk, man. Come eat the real food, you know? Let's pray.